1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. <clears throat> you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel, in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. <clears throat> For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Father, we know what we do this morning is a matter of life and death, and so we plead with you through your word, that word that sanctifies and washes. Wash us and cleanse us, and fit us to walk in your service this week. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, do take a seat. It's lovely to see you. A special welcome if you're visiting us this morning. And we're continuing a series in 1 Thessalonians, as Tim said earlier. And Paul starts in an extraordinary way. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. It was not a failure. It's a strong statement. 
And in some ways, it seems a bit odd. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul and Silas went into Thessalonica, a city that had never heard the gospel preached before. And they stayed there for just a few months, possibly even a few weeks. And as they preached the gospel, a church came into being. We wonder, how could it possibly be a failure if Camel Gracie or Jolene went into a city and preached for a few months and a church sprung up? We'd be thrilled. And yet you remember that Paul and Silas were chased out of town. They were persecuted into the next village and uh, from the next city. The, the, the pursuers followed them and, and, and drove them on from there. And there are probably some in Thessalonica saying, that Paul, that Silas, they're jokers, charlatans, come to trick you. Maybe some of the church begun to doubt. Have we genuinely believed or have we been deceived? Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy's aim in this passage this morning, I'm going to not say Paul and Silas and Timothy all the way through. It is Paul and Silas and Timothy. I'm just going to say Paul, I think, by and large. It's a bit of a mouthful, Paul and Silas and Timothy, but it's all of them. But they're here to reassure us in this passage, or reassure the Thessalonians, that their ministry was genuine. And they give us a blueprint of what genuine Christian ministry looks like. And we see in verses 1 to, 2, uh, 1 to 12 what doing genuine Christian ministry involves. Don't, don't bother to put this on the slide yet, Andrew. And then after that, 13 to 16, we, we see what receiving genuine Christian ministry involves. And we're going to spend some time in both. But we need to be careful. Paul is an apostle, and we are not. And some of these things, I, I take it, probably apply more directly to full-time Christian workers, those who've been given the specific task of preaching and teaching. But all of us have been entrusted with the gospel. We all have a responsibility to go out and make the good news known. And I hope as we see Paul's blueprint, we'll compare ourselves. And it might be that we ask, uh, are we doing this as well as we could be? But I think in many areas, it will be to say, keep doing what we're doing more and more. Well, the first point, doing genuine Christian ministry involves faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Or if you'd like that another way, genuine Christian ministry is speaking God's gospel in God's way to please God. Speaking God's gospel in God's way to please God. Paul is adamant that his mission trip wasn't a failure. Not because a church is planted. That's what I'd point to. There's a church. No, what does he say, verse 2? Because with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Because Paul and Silas preached the gospel. This verse is a tremendous challenge as well as an encouragement. The challenge is it reminds us that telling the gospel is hard. They needed to dare. We need to stick our necks on the line. Risk is involved. On Tuesday in our Bible, group, uh, Bible study group, somebody said very honestly, I guess the kind of honesty that most of us feel but don't say, they said, I'm nervous on campus about speaking of Jesus that I'll be thought a fool and seem shameful. Well, that's not something that stops if you're an apostle. Paul and Silas were flogged publicly in Philippi. What must it have taken to dare in the next city? to preach boldly. Well, we're not in danger of being flogged. But it's risky nonetheless, isn't it? Our reputations. What will our friends think? Will we seem pushy? I think I told you a few months ago the story of a, a doctor who was suspended because he spoke too often of Jesus. Well, the reality is often we don't dare. We, we're too frightened. 
I remember, to my shame, I was at a barbecue and sitting with family friends, two of whom were teachers, and they were describing their school. It was a school on a sort of sink estate. Many of their children's parents were drug addicts. There was no discipline at all in the school. And they were just saying how terrible it was. And somebody said, well, what would you do? All kinds of ideas. Well, stricter discipline. Need new methods, after-school clubs. But all the answers were patently uh, not going to change much. And there was a pause in the conversation. And I remember thinking, I should tell the gospel. The thing that can change that school is the Lord Jesus. As those children, and in turn parents, come to know Jesus, as their lives are changed. I should have spoken of Whitfield and Wesley as they went about in England preaching. And whole communities like that were changed by the power of the gospel. Silence continued. Conversation moved on. I didn't dare. Evangelism is hard. Sharing the gospel is hard. But here's the encouragement. How are Paul and Silas able to dare? Is it because they're great evangelists? Naturally courageous men? Maybe because they're full-time workers? No. Verse 2. With the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel. Do you see, God loves to help. Notice it's his gospel. As we go through it, we'll see again and again how God-orientated this passage is. It's God's gospel, and no one is more committed to it than he is. He's the one who came up with it before the beginning of the time. He's the one who sent his son to come into the world to die so that the gospel, the good news, could happen as he deals with God's wrath on the cross. God will ensure the gospel goes to the end of the earth. Maybe you think I could never be good at sharing the gospel well the things we could do to help this training we could run and if you'd be interested come and talk to me but you see god longs to help us i wonder do we pray for his help i wonder if you think back to acts a few months ago the early church huddling together in a room praying god make us bold and god did and ordinary men and women went out to preach the gospel and the city the cities were turned upside down. Wonder are we praying to be bold, praying that we dare? Well, Paul goes on to tell us why he dares. We dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition for or because, verse 3, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. Well, faithful Christian ministry isn't just speaking the gospel. It's speaking it in God's way to please God. You can imagine the people in Thessalonica coming in. That Paul, he's no longer here, is he? He was just a joker. Just another traveling speaker in error, making things up. He had impure motives. There's a hint of sexual immorality in there. Do you remember the not a few prominent women we laughed about last week? Well, we know what Paul wanted to do with them. Maybe he's a trickster coming to con them of their money. And I think Paul's logic is this. If his goal was to get something for himself, financial gain or, or sexual favors or something, he'd move on as soon as uh, persecution comes to easier ground. wasn't easy, so move on. Find it elsewhere. But Paul doesn't suit himself. He's not trying to please people. No, verse 4, he's entrusted with the gospel. He's a steward of the gospel. And so he needs to do it in God's way. And you notice again and again, Paul's great concern to please God. 
He's so aware that he lives his life in the presence of God. God sees what he does. Verse, five, uh, uh, verse 3 or 4. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Or verse 5. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And again in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you. Faithful ministry is speaking God's gospel in God's way to please God. So tempting, looking down on you here, to leave out unpleasant bits from time to time of the gospel. Maybe you know someone will be offended, tempted to leave it out. Well, friends, will we pray? Pray for Jay and for me and others who preach. Pray for Bible study leaders. Pray for our, those who, who, when we're talking to other people, that we'd be faithful not hiding the hard bits, not doing it to make ourselves look good, doing it to please God, faithful stewards of the gospel, concerned with what God wants, not people. Now, there's some visiting here. If, if this is going to be your church, we'd love to have you, but if not, will you go to a church where this is the priority, faithfully preaching the gospel in God's way? Because genuine Christian ministry means faithfully proclaiming the word of God. Well, secondly, doing genuine Christian ministry means suffering for the people of God. Paul makes clear that suffering, hardship, is a part of Christian ministry. We'd see in verse 6, as an apostle, he could have been a burden, he could have lorded it over the little church in Thessalonica, but he didn't. Now, he makes it clear elsewhere that those who labour full-time in the gospel should receive their, their salary, their stipend from the churches. But he lays that down. He doesn't insist upon it. Rather, he's like a mother, gentle with little children. Isn't verse 7 wonderful? We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. Just think that through. It's easy to gloss over the image, isn't it? But think of a young mother with her baby or her toddler. The baby cries. The mother has to go. It's a full-time job. Always on call. Charlie and I would love another baby. I think we'd have one tomorrow. If it wasn't for the changing nappies, crying through the night, all the hassle. And aren't we sometimes like that? Maybe we know someone needs an, a word of encouragement. Or there's somebody we, we know, a neighbour, we'd love them to hear the gospel. But we know if we pick up the phone, we'll be on it for two or three hours. We'd happily give them the tract. Getting involved in the mess of life is too costly. Christian ministry is costly. Are we as a church willing to do that, to share our lives, not just the gospel? Well, Paul goes on, verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. And Paul deliberately chose to make tents, to make it as easy as possible for the church to accept his ministry. Well, if we're going to do that, to make our ministry as acceptable as possible to the world around, it will be costly. There was a church in Cambridge, it's right in the centre of Cambridge, and uh, they didn't have any students. And a new vicar came and they realised, we should. He, he said, we should reach out to these students on our doorstep. And the church said, that would be a great thing to do. And he warned them, well, if we do that, it will be costly. Students don't bring in money, by and large, into a church. And so no, there'll be no one to pay for the children's worker. Children's work will suffer. 
the programs won't be as great as they could be if we focused on other people. And they said, no, we must reach the students. And the motto of that church at one time was this. God is committed to growth. Growth involves change. Change is always costly. We embrace the cost of change for the sake of growth, for the glory of God. It's a wonderful motto, isn't it? Change is costly. We'll embrace it for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. And I think looking around and hearing about St. Stephen's, that's what you've done. Think over the last few months, the unity we've had in difficult times is a testimony to that. As what I've heard in the times after the earthquake, people coming together for the sake of the gospel. I I don't like meeting in, in a school hall and putting out chairs. I don't really like the drums. I'd prefer the 8.30. But for the sake of the gospel, we'll come together. And it's costly. But it's good for the gospel and for God's glory. So we do it. I sense, though, we're entering a new phase in some ways. Look around. This room is full with not many empty seats. Or certainly people... There may be empty seats, but we have to squeeze in. For the sake of the gospel, we'll need to think of how we use this room. That will be costly. Change is always costly. There's no hidden change coming. But we will in time need to think of what we do, and that will be costly. Will we do something that's costly for the sake of the gospel? Our house groups are by and large full. We need to start new house groups. That means they'll need new house group leaders. I take it that means probably some of the established house groups will have to give up leaders because the potential leaders are probably in there. That'll be costly. But will we do it for the sake of growth and for the sake of the gospel? If you're at our church meetings, you'll know that money is very, very tight. We run a deficit every month. If we're to keep doing what we do, if we're to expand our work, we'll need to dig deep. It'll be costly. It's not for no reason that Paul and Silas talk of toil and hardship. Genuine Christian ministry involves suffering to serve the people of God. But it's wonderful because lives are changed and people come to faith. And do we see Paul's ultimate goal here in verse 12? He longs that people would come and live in a way that's worthy of the call they've received. And what a wonderful call it is. For you know that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We're called into the kingdom of God, into God's glory. We've seen Paul like a mother. Here he's much more like a father. And as a sort of sidebar, it's not a main point But do you notice the role of fathers here in in bringing up children? If you're a Christian father and you're not involved in that, not involved in reading the Bible with your children and praying, I'd love to come and I'd love you to come and talk to me. That's a really key thing, a role that fathers especially have in bringing up their children. But you see, Paul takes that example and applies it to the church. He urges, he encourages, he comforts all the things that a good father tries to do with their child to get them to live in a way that is fitting with the call they've received. If you're a Christian, you're a son or daughter of the living God, a prince or princess of the king, if you like, and he's called us to live in the light of that. I find these verses challenging. I'm challenged that when I meet with you in the week, I'm going to be better at asking, how is it going with the Lord? That's the crucial thing, isn't it? Are we living 
in a way that's pleasing to God. I'd love you to ask me the same. How is it really going with the Lord? And if we do that with one another, I take it will be costly. We'll have to take time to listen. You can't just, oh, how are you doing? Yep, great. My world's falling apart. I have to say that. It's costly to say it. It's costly to listen. Maybe costly to say a hard word or to, to give up time to help someone. But do you see what it does? It helps people to become more and more like Jesus. More and more worthy of that great call to live as sons and daughters of the king. Called into the kingdom. Sometimes people ask me, is there somewhere I can serve? And there's lots of places I could find for you on a roster. But actually, in some ways, we just would long for people to open their home and find someone to urge to keep going in the faith. Take someone for coffee and urge them. Let them urge you to keep going and to live in a godly way. And that will ripple out in all areas of church. But it's costly. Genuine Christian ministry means serving the people of God and suffering for the people of God. Well, we've seen what doing genuine Christian ministry involves. What does receiving genuine Christian ministry mean? This is much shorter, but this is the other side of the coin from verses 13 to 16. Receiving genuine Christian ministry means receiving faithfully the word of God. Look at verse 13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And the amazing truth is that when the Bible is taught, when it's preached, when it's shared, when it's done faithfully, it is to be received as the word of God, as if God was speaking. And that means it must be received as such. It's not just somebody's opinion that we can take or leave. God is speaking. Take it, that's the flip side of the first point. If God has entrusted the gospel to faithful men and women who faithfully present it to others, then God is speaking. And we can't just take or leave it. We have to accept it as God's voice, which is what these Thessalonians did. Now we need to be careful. There's two ways we could fall off either side of this and become imbalanced. Either we minimize and deny how significant gospel preaching is, or we fall off the other side and we play it up. We become a kind of cult. One of my bugbears. Uh, I don't think we do this at St. Stephen's, but sometimes, uh, maybe we do occasionally, sometimes you go to a church and they'll introduce the the preacher and they'll say, so-and-so is going to explain the word of God. Well, I hope I have explained something of the word of God, but it's much more than that. Not just giving a commentary. When the word is preached properly, God speaks. One of the Reformation confessions says, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Not in the same way as the Bible, but in in a sense that God himself is speaking through it. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it, this morning? It means I can't just give you my opinion from the pulpit. And if I do, I should make it clear. This is my opinion. But when it's faithful from the Bible, God himself is speaking. Well, we can downplay that. That would be a great danger. The other side would be to give authority authority that's inappropriate for our impressions of God. We may have a sense that God is prompting us to say something to someone. But we must not claim that the Lord is speaking unless we can demonstrate it from the scriptures we might think that God is saying something to us. 
We need to be careful to say, Lord, the Lord has said to me, and not lay a burden upon ourselves that isn't there. If we can't share it from the Bible, we need to be very careful. And even more so if we say it to someone else, oh, the Lord gave a word from me to you. Well, great if that's a scripture verse. But if it's just my kind of notion, we need to be very careful. It could be the Lord. Don't mishear me. The Lord does press things upon people. But have you ever thought it could be the devil? could just be the cheese I ate last night. We need to be very careful. Fine to encourage, but not to claim it's from God if we can't be sure. Let me just flesh that out. I take it from this passage. It would be right for me to say, the Lord says, if we're to do genuine Christian ministry, we are to be bold. God says that. Thus says the Lord. And I take it, if we were to go to work tomorrow and someone were to ask us, could you tell me who Jesus is? And we were to go, oh, I, I don't really know. I, just unclear. I, I can't remember. I and mean, duck out. Well, then God would have said to us, be bold. And we would have disobeyed. And it would be right to go home and say, God, I stuffed up. You told me to be bold. And I messed up. And I'm sorry. Not to beat ourselves up, but to say, God, I messed up. Thank you that I'm forgiven, that every sin is forgiven at the cross. Please forgive me and help me again to live in your way. And we rejoice that every sin is wiped away. That would be a a right application, I think, of this passage. But if I were to say, well, God is telling us to be bold, thus says the Lord, and to sort of peer over my glasses at you and say, God is saying somebody in this room should go and be bold in China. Well, God could be saying that. Maybe somebody is feeling that call. But I have no warrant from the scriptures to say, God is saying to somebody here, be bold in China. And if I did that, I hope you'd come and take me aside and rebuke me. But when it's done rightly, do you see, that's the other danger. But when we avoid the two extremes, when the word is preached faithfully, God has spoken. And we must respond to God, not to me, but to God. The Puritans were very clear that the sermon doesn't end when the preacher sits down. They spoke of a great need to repeat the sermon to one another, to check that what has been said is faithful, then to check they'd understood it, and then to apply it to one another. This week, the young adults spent some time in the Bible study doing just that, working out what did last week's sermon mean and how do we apply it. Can I encourage you, if that's not your habit, to do that somewhere, to work it out. It's really helpful to do it together, I think. Well, do you see the wonderful promise at the end of verse 13? That when we do that, what happens? The word of God is at work in us. That word that created the universe, that raises the dead to life, is at work in us. Isn't that wonderful? Changing us. Well, very briefly, how do we know it's at work in us? guess there's many ways we become more godly become more like jesus but see the mark that paul points to here this is the fourth point receiving genuine christian ministry means being prepared to suffer as the people of god look at verse 14 for you brothers became imitators of god's churches in judea which are in christ jesus you suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those churches suffered from the jews They became imitators of the churches in Judea. And do you see what it says? Those churches are in Christ. And as the church in Thessalonica suffers too, it proves they're in Christ. The suffering proves they're genuine. It's probably just wise to say a word about Paul's words. What he goes on to say seems very harsh, doesn't it? The Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and so on. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. 
this isn't anti-Semitism. Remember, Paul himself is a Jew. Paul actually supervised this kind of persecution. Do you remember? He was part of the people who persecuted the Christians. But it's a fact. It was the Jews who cried out, kill him, to Jesus. It's a fact that the Jews were the ones who drove out the apostles. But do you see they're not the only ones who displease God? What's the issue? What's the great issue of hostility? It's that they're trying to stop people hearing the word of God. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do. If I were to jump down and, and assault Tim, injure him greatly, I didn't know if I could do that to Tim, but if I could, that would stay with him potentially for the rest of his life. People who've been abused, it stays with them for the rest of their lives. Keeping people from the word of God stays with people for eternity. That's why it's so hostile to the people there. How, how unloving was it for the Jews to drive Paul and Silas out and keep the gospel from being preached in that place? It's a terrible thing. And I guess the people in the church were liable to be bitter. God says no. Uh, Paul says no. God will judge. The wrath of God has or will come upon them at last, so certain that he puts in the past tense. But precisely because of that, Paul goes first to the synagogue to preach the gospel. And do you remember the verse at the end of last week? The faithful Christian waits for Jesus from heaven, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul is not saying this with spite. He long said repent. But the reality is for those who oppose this great wrath, But friends, you see, the mark of genuine Christian ministry is a willingness to suffer. Paul says elsewhere, everyone who wishes to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And friend, if you're suffering this morning for being a Christian, do you see that's a mark that you're a genuine believer, sitting under a genuine ministry, that the word of God is working deeply in your heart. Praise the Lord that he's keeping you and helping you. Well, doing genuine Christian ministry involves faithfully proclaiming the word of God and being prepared to suffer, to serve the people of God. And then faithfully receiving it means faithfully listening. Faithfully listening to the word of God and being prepared to suffer as the people of God. May God make us faithful in those areas. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we long that if there are areas where we're unfaithful, you'd show them and we'd turn and repent. But Father, more and more, help us to be bold with the gospel. Help us to be willing to suffer, to pay the cost to serve the gospel and serve the people of God. Thank you for the way so many do that. We pray help us more and more to do it. And help us to more and more receive your word as the word of God. Change us through your word, week by week, through Bible studies, through opening our Bibles in the morning or in small groups. Change us. And make us ready to stand firm, even when suffering comes. And we ask it all, not that we might be thought to be great, but that Jesus might be glorified. For his name's sake. Amen.